coming up on this episode. And I still remember putting on the headset the very first time I was sitting in my office in my office chair that kind of spun around. And when you film in 360, it is actually set up so that you can turn your head to one side or the other and the sound is like it's there it's it's as if you are in the room you can look all the way around you you can look up you can look down and i still remember the feelings the emotions that that brought forth into me and i thought wow i wonder what this will do for our students Hello, everyone, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a public health faculty at Ohio University. I'm thrilled to have you join me today for another inspiring episode. I know we've been out of commission for a couple of months. Uh, life happens, but I'm glad to get back on this and I have a treat for you. But before we get to that, um, this episode is brought to you by Okera Coffee. That's U-K-I-I-R-A Coffee. Elevate your coffee experience today with premium, freshly roasted beans delivered to your door. Use code SAVE10, S-A-V-E-1-0, for your first order, or SAVE16, S-A-V-1-6, for any three products at checkout. Treat yourself at shopokeracoffee.com, that's S-H-O-P-U-K-I-I-R-A, coffee.com. We are so excited you're joining us today. I'm so hyped about today's guest. She's my colleague and she's doing fantastic research and community engagement work. Dr. Charlena Buckman is an associate professor in the School of Nursing at Ohio University. She has a doctorate degree in instructional technology and a master's degree in nursing with a focus on education. She serves as a team lead for the nursing education track. Dr. Buckman emphasizes creativity and innovation in her teaching and research using simulation uh, sign VR and Bachelor Reality. She received the 2021 Midwestern Nursing Research Society Nursing Education Rig Early Career Award for her groundbreaking work in VR and healthcare. Her service expertise includes curriculum development and revision, uh, which demonstrates through service at her school, college, and university. And she also maintains a clinical nursing practice as a registered nurse. So excited to have you on the show, Dr. Buckman. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Kingori. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So with all that amazing work you've done, I've been following your work and I'm always just so jazzed by the ease in which you get to do this really innovative research. You know, tell us, like, we know how what what are you about you know could you share your journey and your experiences that led you to first becoming a nurse and then getting into education and instructional technology and then how you're combining that work into the field of healthcare education focusing on technology and opioid crisis absolutely so i think my journey to become a nurse probably is very similar to many other nurses um, whenever I was younger, I was probably about 11, 12 years old, and my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. And at that point, that was the first time in my life that somebody had had an illness. So although I knew um, there was such a thing as a school nurse, as a first-generation college student, I really didn't know about professions. And so when I when grandmother became sick, I volunteered. I was like, oh, please let me stay with her. Let me be the one so that my grandfather could go out and work in the hayfield. 
And so after much discussion, my parents agreed to allow me to do that. And so I was able to stay with her. It was over the summer. So I would go down in the morning and I would stay there until like the six o'clock news came on. And um, it was through that experience that a home health nurse started coming to visit. And that was my first experience. And I thought, wow, this is really great. You mean I can do this for the rest of my life, go and help take care of people? And so that was kind of the beginning of what brought me on that journey. And so I went to school and um, as I was, you know, still in junior high and then moving through high school, I was like, I know I want to be a nurse. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a nurse. And so that was the path that I took. Um, So I did go into nursing, but I did it in a challenging way. I would say I did a, a ladder path. So I started out as a nursing assistant. And then I um, became a licensed practical nurse. And then at that point, when I was a licensed practical nurse, I was working long-term care because I, surprise, love the elderly. That's like one of my most favorite populations of patients to work with. And so I was working on an Alzheimer behavioral health unit. And I started thinking, okay, what can I do more? I, I love this. I have this group of patients but there's got to be something more that I can give. I was in my early 20s at that point, and I knew that um, while I wanted to keep practicing, I thought as I started thinking about it, I thought, you know, if I went into education, if I became a nursing instructor, then I could reach so many more lives, and I could help others who um, have that same desire to care that I do to go out and um, further their education as well and take care of more patients. So I went back to school because I wasn't quite ready at that point. I had to get my associate's degree and um, and then a bachelor's degree all while growing my family at home. And so when, after I received my bachelor's degree, I was actually caring for a patient um, as a nurse at an acute care facility when um, somebody in the room that was a visitor spoke to me and said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, absolutely, sure. And this was after the care was provided to the patient. And she said, have you ever thought about being in nursing education? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have. And she said, well, I want you to know that I am the director of nursing at Ohio University in Chillicothe, Ohio, and I want you to come see me on Monday. And so I did. And we talked, and so I got started in um, nursing education as a result of somebody seeing my nursing skill set. And I thought, wow, that's really amazing because that is what I wanted to do. And so um, immediately I started in an um, adjunct role for Ohio University on the Chillicothe campus, and I remained there for five years. Um, during that time, I was obtaining my master's degree. When I finished my master's degree, then it became time to um, move to Ohio University Athens as they had just opened up a nursing program um, undergraduate on campus. And so I was able to um, transition and I started out as the simulation lab coordinator. I believe that as an educator, it is my job to make experiences meaningful. And so Through that process of moving to Athens, I became really involved in simulation. Simulation is a historical way for nurses to learn. I say historical now because it's been over 20 years, Um, but it is really a a way of role-playing 
situations and scenarios and bringing them to life so that the students can have lived experiences, things that really um, do happen in real life. They get to practice them in a safe environment. And so I started doing that as I um, worked on my PhD and obtained that in instructional technology, as you mentioned. But through that process, that led me from education into research. Because the entire time that I have been teaching, I've also maintained a clinical practice. Because for me, in my profession, it was important that I maintained clinical practice to stay up on what is the current evidence-based practice so that as I'm delivering that to students, then they're getting what is expected of them when they leave. And But it was during that time when I was seeing things and I thought, wow, you know, why are we doing something a certain way? Why? What's the why behind that? And it really got me investigating the why. And so seeing things in my rural Appalachia hometown area where I grew up and where I um, work and and while I love to visit other places, I always love to come back. Um, I am rural Appalachian bred and hope to always be here. But um, when I come back and I'm, I'm looking around and I'm like, this is who we are. This is what we are. And so I went to a conference and I was, um, I, I was presenting on something most likely simulation based. But there was another faculty member there that presented. It was a nursing conference very large, probably close to a thousand, couple thousand nurses there. And she was presenting on rural Appalachia and social determinants of health and talking about using outdoor toilets and living in an area where we have um, food disparities and the opioid crisis. And I'm looking around and I'm like, what? Why are people like flocking to this presentation? This is like everyday stuff. But at the end of her presentation, I don't think I've ever been at a conference where more questions were raised um, to her. And it opened my eyes to say that or to see that what we see every day here is maybe not what everybody sees across the country and um, the nation. And so we are unique in that. Um, so our, our little Ohio University that's kind of in this rural Appalachian area is a great opportunity for research. And so that really led me to get started. That is such a fantastic story. um that is so inspiring and i really want to follow up on um you learning about technology and i see why you're so interested in incorporating technology in in um in nursing education or health education depending on how you look at it and so could you tell us a little bit about you know after seeing all these things that are possible um, after realizing that, you know, the way we see things and the way our communities see things are different, what led you to wanting to develop um, virtual reality simulations? Uh, you talked about how simulations are so important. Um, you know, you came up with this Narcan simulation project and um, how it can help with dealing with opioid crisis. How, how did you come up with that? And, you know, what led to that project? Absolutely. So um, it started through my clinical position. So I was a house supervisor at a local um, healthcare facility, and this was just pre-COVID. 
And so we were seeing multiple patients, like every shift I would work, which is, you know, once a week, on the weekend I would work. And every shift I was there, it seemed that there was somebody coming in that had had an overdose. And most of the time it was an opioid overdose. And it just, it was so frustrating as a healthcare provider because there was nothing we could do until they were already there, right? So talking about that, thinking about that, I have a long commute. So I use my commutes to process things and think about things. But as I went into one night shift, um, and here we were again, here came another opioid overdose. And um, as the nurses were in the team, the healthcare team were taking care of the patient and came the mother. And as a mother myself, I think I just really resonated with her. And she was so emotional. And so I took her to another room and I had the um, opportunity to just sit there with her, hold her hand, listen to her. And the questions that she was asking were just so overwhelming to me at the time because she's like, why? Why would he do this? How, you know, how did he get it? How, how come it took so long for somebody to respond? And so uh, while I didn't have answers for her, was able to kind of just provide some comfort to her in that moment. And thankfully, in that situation, her son survived. And um, they were able to move forward, you know, with their relationship and hopefully the patient's recovery. But that really impacted me so much so that normally I would go home and by the time I got home, I would be finished processing it. But not this time. It took me days. And then I, I started thinking about it and I thought, I work at the best institution on in the world, in my opinion. We have a wonderful just group of people here at Ohio University. And I thought, if I talk about this with some others, maybe we can brainstorm some great ideas. And I knew that I wanted to pull that into a simulation first. Um, so that's what I did. I, I pulled a group together and I said, here's my idea for a simulation. At the time, I was teaching an interprofessional health course, so I had students from multiple professions, and I took it to them because students have great ideas, and you put them together, and it's just amazing what they can come up with. And so I said, here's the outcome I want. I want a simulation where we educate people about naloxone or Narcan, which is an antidote for um, opioids, it's opioid overdose. And... I want to actually show people what an overdose looks like. So they went to work. They did a bunch of research. We together as a team, we built a simulation. Uh, we held a conference here at Ohio University. We brought in outside um, agencies as well as um, some other faculty. And they were able to um, act out the simulation. We were able to film it and um, receive feedback. And so it was a wonderful experience. We got some great feedback. And a lot of that feedback was, I wish I could show this to others. I wish I could share this with my community of population of people. And so I started thinking about that. And I thought, simulation is wonderful. But if Dr. Kangori led a sim simulation and I led a simulation, they'd be different. And the students wouldn't have the same lived experience. So... I got um, in touch with the Grid Lab, and I worked with two gentlemen from there, um, Eric Williams and John Bowditch. And I said, here's what I want to do. How can you help me make that happen? 
we had a zero dollar budget at that time and um so they said well here here's our idea and we went back and forth until we reached what we both agreed upon in order to deliver this and so we set it up uh, we have volunteer actors we had um, people who were not trained, but we spent one day filming um, this virtual reality. And one thing to know about virtual reality is that um, with the type of VR that we are doing here at Ohio University, we call it Cine VR. So Cine VR is more like you're at a cinema. So we want a big experience, like you're there. Not that you're just watching it, but you're kind of in the middle of it. And so we wanted this experience to um, be very um, immersive, I guess. And we wanted people to feel present in what they were experiencing. So we did this filming in one day. They took it back to their team. They did a lot of editing and they presented it. And I still remember putting on the headset the very first time I was sitting in my office in my office chair that kind of spun around. And when you film in 360, it is actually set up so that you can turn your head to one side or the other and the sound is like it's there it's it's as if you are in the room you can look all the way around you you can look up you can look down and i still remember the feelings the emotions that that brought forth into me and i thought wow i wonder what this will do for our students and so we did we conducted um, a pilot study and um the um emotional aspect was very high now what we did find in that study is that because we filmed it in 360 which was all the way around people were having um, different experiences because they were looking at different areas at different times and due to the high emotional level we were seeing maybe less knowledge content retention so then as we move forward in this process we um, we piloted that and then they came back and said you know what um, let's refilm this let's hire some actors and actresses and so um, a, a budget was received from chsp i received a small grant an inspire grant in which we were able to utilize those funds to make this an even more meaningful vr experience we actually filmed it in a dorm instead of, you know, mock simulation. So we filmed it in a dorm with actors. We had them um, mock simulate um, overdose and then how to respond. And so through that cinema experience with real actors and actresses, it really um, changed the level of what we were delivering. And we filmed a series of three scenarios. And so one we did purposely film in the 360, the full all the way around. Um, we also did a scenario where we used a 180, so you could only see beside you and forward. And so in that scenario, um, aligning with what we had saw in the research, we found that the level of empathy and presence and the level of knowledge retention were more similar, more in line with each other. And then on our third scenario, we found that if we filmed in a 90 degree, where we were only focusing on a set area, the emotional level may be a little less, although still there, but the knowledge content retention level was higher. 
And so that's pretty fascinating. And um, so we were able to kind of take that and just continue to grow with that. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I am eating all this up, you know, and I'm, I'm envisioning what you're hearing, you know, um, yeah. and the 360 and the 180 view is just so fascinating. Um, and I know that you've continued to do more, you've received more funding um, for that. But I wanted to just get your perspective, um, you know, with all that you've done and this being a public health show and you're doing public health work. How do you see your research in curriculum design, looking at technology and virtual reality, and then your healthcare, nursing education, what is that potential impact on public health outcomes? Do you see any? It's a great question. So I can go back for just a minute to when I started working on my PhD and everyone is like, why are you doing instructional technology? You're a nurse. Why aren't you doing this in nursing? And I can say that nursing and instructional technology married so beautifully for me because of where my heart is and where my passion lies. And um, I knew that when I started building this, we didn't want it just for our students for training. We wanted to create things that would help those that are already working in our professions, as well as hopefully those in community situations. And so for one of the um, Narcan scenarios that we filmed, it's actually if you find somebody um, in a parking lot that has overdosed how do you respond and so it kind of walks through that process and so um, we have had um, some national recognition through um, Ann Hazlitt coming here from pre-COVID uh, from the White House and she was you know very interested in what we were designing here along with some other VR projects here at Ohio University and so just through all of this publicity, we also were um, contacted by different community groups and by different um, universities across the United States asking to utilize our programs in different ways. Now, unfortunately, COVID did put a halt on um, many of those projects because we were just at the peak of what we were getting ready to do. And of course, we had no contact. And although now we are back up and running, we are still limited in our contact and um, getting things going back. But we certainly want to continue to work with our community groups. And you mentioned that I do have a few other projects. So um, one of those is built around Parkinson's disease. We did a series of um, virtual reality with um, providing care for patients with Parkinson's disease. And we were able to start a Parkinson's support group in the community. And so that kind of led from this VR. And then in addition, we've um, our most recent project is creating workplace violence scenarios through VR. And those, I think, will be very valuable, not only to those who work in acute care, but to our clinical partners in the community who are at clinic setting and home health settings. We did a scenario for a home health situation, uh, but that's kind of where we are right now with the delivery of our community products. 
And I like that feedback because you really highlight the essence of public health. And one of those is bringing people together, right? Um, relying on different partners, collaborating with different people. And you, you know, your, your program is co collaborative. Your project is collaborative. Um, you know, working with the grid lab. And now you had the White House coming to you. Then you have all these community organizations and the community itself and other universities. And this is what we do to sort of enhance that health of the public or, you know, what now we're calling population health. And even without knowing, you know, uh, when I have these interviews with people who are not entirely in public health, I'm like, you are doing public health work. <laughs> and we appreciate that, you know, from that clinical setting, then coming to health education and going to technology, all these different fields play a big role um, in ensuring that we are making the best um, out of the resources that we have to enhance um, the health of our public. So I wanted to know a little bit more about that Narcan simulation. And you have a paper that, you know, you looked at empathy and reduction in addiction stigma. So I'd like you to talk a little bit to us about how that project fosters empathy, how it reduces this addiction stigma among students, and how maybe that might translate into the broader public health benefits. So the opioid crisis was um, just an overwhelming, it's an overwhelming problem and it just really kind of led this project, right? So the Narcan project was based on that because we know that in 2017, we had over 47,000 deaths um, and that 67.8% were related to opioids. And then just one year later, although the number of overdose deaths was similar, the percentage had increased about 2%. Um, so we were looking at about 69% um, of overall deaths related to the opioid crisis. And so when we um, look at that, it really just uh, became an issue of getting the knowledge out to those who needed it. And so talking about Narcan, and while people have varying opinions on whether or not Narcan should be available to everybody, I would challenge you to say, put yourself in a mother's shoes, put yourself in a father's shoes, put yourself in anybody's shoes because the opioid crisis is affecting people from all ages. And it doesn't matter. Um, you might think that, yeah, my kid's 15. I don't have to worry about that. That is not true. You do. You do need to think about that. And so sometimes when we talk about a patient as a healthcare provider, some people say the diabetic patient or the overdose, you know, the patient who OD'd or the junkie or this or that. And so while we're trying to discourage that talk, even from saying the diabetic patient to the patient who has diabetes, we want that same thing for patients who's who um, have overdosed or um, have substance use disorders or opioid use disorders. So they want to, you know, first they're a person and that's what we have to focus on. The person behind whatever the disease process or addiction process it is, the person has to be first. And so I think by making sure that people remember that small little aspect that before anything else, I am a person. 
you know, before I'm a mother, before I am a wife, before I am a faculty member, before I'm a nurse, I am a person. And so while I am all those other things as well, I am a person first. And so um, getting people to understand that about those who suffer from addiction disorders is a huge challenge because they um, tend to always be referred to in those negative connotations. So I think if we could start at the very beginning, um, you know, I know we have pre-K to 12 educators that are working on this as well with the language, the inclusivity of your language and being careful not to utilize those stigma words. Um, also, we can work on that at the um, levels that we teach at, at the university levels and just kind of keep that going. But through the use of the SNARCAM video, that was one of the things that we wanted to highlight. And we added an education piece that is in 2D that goes along with the 3D in the headset. So while they remain in the headset, it goes to for a brief time, almost like you are sitting in a movie theater and you are learning about addiction and you are learning about the words that you should and should not use. Um, and I think that through that education, we know education is key, but through that education, we are opening eyes and the more eyes we open, the more that's going to trickle down. And so it's a start. It is certainly not a finish, but it is definitely a place for us to start. And how we translate that to the public is through education, I believe. So going to um, as many events as possible and allowing as many people as possible to view the Narcan um, scenarios as well as others at our university um, will really help to kind of bring that to life for people. And I think, again, it goes back to those lived experiences. If we have those lived experiences, then we are more understanding, I think, and less likely to utilize those terms. So if we, um, you know, know that we shouldn't say addict and, you know, we read that, that's one thing we may forget that but if we have a lived experience and we see somebody calling somebody that and how it affected them and we were right there in that room with them through the um, opportunity of the headset then that is how I think we can translate that to the public and I think that aligns kind of with um, Kolb's experiential learning theory and so that was the theory that um, our group selected as we were outlining this. It just kind of helps us assert that through the phases, there are four phases, but by the end in which we're debriefing and we're learning and reflecting on those experiences and we're drawing our own conclusions, we can now say, hey, because of this experience, I am changed and I am not going to be that person that I may have been before. I, I like that feedback. Um, in in public health, you know, we like you said, um, often it's creating that awareness. Um, public health is at the heart of prevention, and with this Narcan training and training, um, or and, and you know, and, and increasing that knowledge and um, the skill set, that also goes a long way to reducing right the mortality rates. You know, yeah. the deaths associate associated with um, <laughs> my. You just well um, associated with um, substance use, right, and opioid use. So, 
the work you're doing definitely is at the heart of um, public health. And I, I like the fact that the field of public health is all encompassing. And, and I really applaud you for, for that creativity and, and, and Nobel strategies um, that you have. So when you talk about immersive virtual reality, you've uh, published papers um, you know, about that. How have you observed improvements in interprofessional communication and empathy? And why do you think this are crucial um, in, in nursing, but also in health education and, and so I started out with um, teaching some interprofessional courses here at Ohio University and where I had students from multiple disciplines, sometimes six or eight different disciplines in a course. And so through that, we focused on communication. We started there because we all communicate and sometimes we're communicating the same things over and over. And so um when we started talking about simulations, and this would apply with our virtual reality as well, through um, applying those scenarios and seeing empathy and seeing change, we are seeing some um, improvements that are happening at a very local level with that group of students. We see that through, um, I, I call them IPE days, interprofessional education days, um, when I was teaching undergraduate we would have nursing students partner with um, one or more other professions where they would learn from with and about each other first so that they had an understanding of who could do what. And we had different scenarios. Um, one was the Narcan scenario and how people responded. So we did um, an opportunity where we put students in small groups. We had them go through a simulation experience where they had to administer Narcan as a team and then we did a debriefing where we talked about that as small groups and then a large group where we had um, over 100 students sometimes close to 200 students in those um, big groups and we were able to kind of just talk about the the aspect of communication and the aspect of empathy and did this help to um, strengthen your team or was it more of an area of you know good good to do but didn't get anything from it and so anecdotally that has been a very positive um, outcome from those students and i wish that we had done some research on that particular project maybe in the future but um it was through that that you could see their eyes light up and shine and they're like oh okay i got this now i know how to do this and so while maybe not everybody learned the skill set they do know again that it is you know if somebody is overdosed they know that they need to call 911 or get help and they know that they need to see if there's narcan available and so those two key components um, and being able to observe that from such a large group of participants was very beneficial and very good for the students and very well um, received so I'm thankful for that experience Yes, and I can imagine now when they go out um, and practice, then they're also able to share that information with others. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, the fire keeps building and growing. Um, and, I, and we've seen changes, you know, in terms yeah. of reducing the number of deaths um, due to opioid crisis. Yeah. So back again to your project um, and, you know, what, what you did and 
the plans, the future plans you have. Um, you mentioned um, that making the Narcan simulation um, available on smartphones is something that you're looking forward to doing that. Um, how do you envision the widespread accessibility, right, of that technology? And then from a health education, public health perspective, how does that ready the communities um, to reduce overdose? And also, again, how do we overall reduce those, those rates within the field? All right, so I'll start with the technology piece. So absolutely, we would like to move um, our VR from the headset into um, some smartphone use. We know that just from research that the, the best opportunity is through a headset, but we can reach so many more people and still have an impact if we could have it through the um, smartphone. So um, our team has been kind of bouncing around ways that we can make that happen. And it's, it's a funding situation. You have to have funding to do that. So we are somewhat limited, but we are working um, on that and the technology continues to grow. So something that maybe wasn't possible two years ago is now becoming more easily accessible and more possible. So we probably all have heard about the cardboard that you can put over your phones and kind of watch. And so that is a, a definite opportunity now for us. And so we could send out the cardboard box to, you know, people anywhere that have smartphones. Uh, we could reach such a um, large population by doing that. And we could still send them perhaps, um, you know, the, the literature, the PowerPoint education that accompanies that to make it uh, more meaningful for the population that we send it to. Also, I can envision us partnering with um, some of the public health institutions like the health departments or Project Dawn, those who are giving out Narcan. And so that they could um, say, hey, here's an experience of somebody who overdosed and this is how they responded so that those that are going through the training of how to actually administer it and taking Narcan home because they know somebody or they have a loved one that could really be affected by this um, would have that opportunity to view that in a, in a way, even at, at their home if you gave them a QR code for example and they take that home in the privacy of their home and they could watch that over and over as many times as needed. So by dispersing this um, through a smartphone technology we could reach such a broader population and definitely health departments um, would be a great opportunity for us to reach but also even just having a um, simulation library or a virtual reality library where we um, are able to um, have that available on our Ohio University website and it's available to the public because that was one of the things that um, was very important to me was in the beginning when we started on Narcan is that I did not want us to charge for this Narcan because this is a life-saving technique that should be shared freely to everybody. And so although we have copyrighted it, there is not a price tag associated with it. And so I want that to be out and dispersed. And so I think the more um, opportunities we have, the more people we can get that out to, of course, the outcomes are going to be much better, right? So that certainly um, 
how I think we can probably start with public awareness and readiness and just um, I want I, I don't know that what we have is the most appropriate, but I think we can make some new scenarios that could even target younger populations of people. And so some ideas in the future would be to really grow our um, simulations, our, our Senna VR in the way of targeting different populations. And so that would also make us more ready for opioid overdose situations because in my community and I'm sure in others as well, we have a huge population and I, I had the number at one point, it's around 50% of our students in pre-K to 12 do not live within a, um, with a parent in my community. And that is because a very huge percentage is related to um, opioid use, substance use disorders and opioid use disorders. And I think by just prevention, as you mentioned, is, is a huge key. And we do prevention through education. Fantastic. And it's it's really concerning when you think about those numbers, right? Um, 50% is, is a huge, um, huge statistic there. So as we start winding down, um, I just wanted to find out from you if you've had any success stories, right? In terms of implication and changes in the community because of those virtual reality simulations and that Narcan project. Have you seen any success stories? And um, the second part of that is any tangible improvements in healthcare um, practice because of what you've been able to um, to to show and to train. Okay, so I don't know that I've seen anything in the news or anything big like that, but I have had um, at least three different students who come up to me and um, have told me, wow, I'm so glad I had this because I had to give Narcan and I knew how to do it and I, I wasn't as scared as what I thought I was going to be. And if I hadn't known how to do it, nobody else in the area did. And so to me, that was like just the whole reason for doing the entire project. So certainly very valuable. And um, I, I think that there's much opportunity to continue with this, um, to further develop it, to add on extra pieces to it. And uh, as we learn the different techniques that make um, the, the education side better, then we can work on making the presence better. And one of the things that we're um, talking about and working on now is how can we make um, the person that is in the headset, we wouldn't be able to do this on smartphones yet, but the person that's in the headset, maybe make it more tangible for them so that not only are they immersed and present, but maybe interactive in the way that if they put on a vest, and somebody hits them or touches them and says, hey, 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 are you okay? You could feel that through the haptic vest. And so I think that taking it to the next level is really going to um, push that education further and push that knowledge level further. And then through that, it'll extend out and we'll have more um, awareness out into our communities. And then we're gonna start to see even more um, but for now, I'll take those three students telling me that they gave Narcan and saved somebody's life. 
And I like that. That makes all the difference, right? Mm -hmm. And so just, you know, as we close down, do you have any memorable moment, right? Even even if it involves um, this project you're doing, something that has really tugged at your heart or is stuck with you in the work you're doing um, and th that you would like to share with us. Mm. That's a tough one because there are so many amazing things that I've had the opportunity to be involved with. Um, but as far as CineVR and just creating, I think the biggest thing is to not shut down ideas because I never dreamed when I first started where we could go with this. And so um, whenever, you know, that, that first time that I had this real vision of creating this when that mother was sitting beside me crying her eyes out and I'm just holding her hand feeling helpless to the point of three students saying hey I gave Narcan and I saved somebody's life I think that just having that um, situation seeing it from where I was in the beginning to where we are now and knowing that the future is is um, endless we could do all kinds of things as we move forward it's just many of those small experiences that this little girl from Appalachia Ohio never really dreamed that you know I'd be a part of to being able to kind of help envision and create some of these learning experiences it's just an overall impactful experience so it's hard to pinpoint just one thing no that that makes really helps summarize what we've talked about today. Um, and, and you've inspired me, you know, uh, <laughs> having looked at what you've done, um, the grid lab and, you know, all the colleagues you've, you've worked with, um, at the university inspired the project, you know, that, uh, you yes. did with the grid lab. And I was like, okay, this is possible. This is possible. wonderful. Yay. <laughs> So just like you, I'm thinking of the next phase, you know, and, yes. and uh, Professor Williams, you're like, we, we got to take this way out there into the yeah. really immersive VR experience. And so if you know someone who's giving away a million dollars, just let me know. Yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> so we're both, when I hear someone, I'll let you know and we can get yes. projects off the ground because they are making a difference in our communities. Yeah. And um, they're also innovative they're also um you know just more contextual if you will um given now that so many of us in our communities are utilizing um, technology so i want to thank you for coming on the uh, podcast today i don't know if you have any lasting words anything you want to say before we wind down well thank you for having me and i would just say to anybody listening always remember that there's a person there no matter what the experience is, you don't know what people are going through. You don't know what their smile is covering up. So just always, no matter what, remember that there's a person there first. And so I think that's uh, some of the advice. And I've always lived by the, you know, one day at a time kind of, of motto. But as I think about things, I, I, I realize now that, you know, I would, as you are thinking about things and talking to people, if you wouldn't say it in front of your mother, you shouldn't say it. So when it comes to stigma and those kind of things, so just be careful um, what you say and how you say things because you can really impact somebody. 
thank you so much for teaching us about empathy you know <laughs> it is vital um yes. even as we work with our communities as we interact with each other and so thanks again for coming on the show and you know i'll keep tracking your work and see where else it goes and i'll invite you back and we can talk more about this and i want to thank all the listeners and the people who will be watching this on youtube um, and you can listen to this wherever you will you listen to your podcast and it will also be on the Public Health Musings channel on YouTube. So thanks again, Dr. Batman, um, and wishing you the best uh, with what you do. And uh, yeah, we'll keep talking. All right. All right. Thank you for having me.